Good evening. Uh, I'm Mark Steiner, and welcome to the Enoch Pratt Library tonight. It's a pleasure to be here. A really impressive crowd, as I would expect, for Tavis Smiley, uh, our colleague on public radio and public television. And you can hear on WEA, by the way, 5 to 7 p.m. every Sunday night. Remind you of that. EA's table's right over there. Be remiss if I didn't say that. And it's an honor for me to be here because uh, Tavis Smiley is a colleague and one of the most important voices in our public media and in media in general. And um, also because I'm a board member of the Enoch Pratt Library, and, uh, which is one of the greatest honors I have to serve this library here. My phone is on. It should be off, which reminds me. I may ask you all to turn off your cell phones. Uh, before we start, a few little things I want to let you know. Turn off all your cell phones. Um, no photographs. Uh, no videos. And uh, the other no is at the end of the evening when uh, Tavis Smiley signs books. No, there will be no personalizations, but he will sign books, and we're going to have a question-and-answer period when Tavis finishes speaking. So I want to welcome you all to this accountable, accountable tour. It will begin here just shortly, and uh, we are looking forward to this evening this evening with Tavis Smiley. My great pleasure first, though, is to introduce the person that we all work for here at the library, Chief Executive Officer of the Interpret Library, woman we are really delighted to have run the greatest library system in America, the greatest librarian in America, Dr. Carla Hayden. Thank you and welcome. I told him he's just a mite prejudice, I think. But I welcome you all to the Annie Pratt Free Library. We really appreciate you joining us for this very, very special installment of our Writers Live series. Tonight we are so excited to honor and have back, and it is an honor to have him back at the Pratt Library, a friend who's been with us for a number of years. He was one of the featured speakers at our Book Lovers Breakfast, and he was here just this fall with Dr. Cornell West, and I think some of you were here, and it was a wonderful occasion. He's always brought a wonderful crowd, but more importantly, he has encouraged healthy and thought-provoking discussion about the issues of the day, and that's what libraries are about, too. We're honored that he chose Baltimore, and even more so that he chose the Pratt Library as part of his nationwide tour of his new book, Accountable, Making America as Good as His Promise. Before we get to our special guest, though, I'd like to do a small commercial and encourage you to pick up the latest Compass. That's our newsletter, and look at all of the programs that we have. All are free. There are all types of activities, and they're coming up not only here, but at the 21 branches throughout the city. And these programs I mentioned, and that free is our middle name. But during these tough economic times, we found that people are rediscovering the library, and they're coming to us even more. People from all walks of life are discovering that they can save thousands of dollars by using our services. And just to give you an example, the Career Center right behind me had a 92% increase in the last three months in terms of people coming to look for job information. 92%. So we appreciate your support. And to keep up with the times, we even put a little box by the door, just in case you're so inclined. But we appreciate even more than that, your being here and being part of the public dialogue and the commons that we all need. So thank you so much. This evening and the accountable tour that Tavis Molly is on is sponsored by 
United Healthcare. And it's my pleasure to introduce to you right now the Regional Vice President of United Healthcare, Mike Curry. Good evening. No, no, no. We're going to do better than that this evening. Good evening. That's much, much better. I feel much better with that. Good evening. My name is Mike Curry. I'm the Regional Vice President uh, for United Healthcare and the Mid Atlantic Health Plan. Mid Atlantic Health Plan constitutes four states in the District of Columbia, those four states being Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, Delaware, and as I've said, the District of Columbia. Uh, as a national sponsor of the Accountability Tour, United Healthcare is committed to working with others like Tavis Smiley to raise awareness of solutions available to Americans. There is momentum for positive change in our country, and frankly put, we want to be a part of the solution. We commend Tavis Smiley for bringing his passion and dedication to important social issues such as health care. United Healthcare is committed to changing the face of health care. We're working hard to ensure all Americans have access to affordable, quality health care for individuals, families, and small business owners. At the same time, we are developing culturally relevant programs for communities of color. For example, our Generations of Wellness initiative focuses on the unique health needs of African Americans, from offering everyday health tips and resources to providing an online African American physician directory. We understand that businesses can approach important social issues like health care with a one-size-fits-all approach. We've heard that loud and clear all across the country. With the current state of the economy, the loss of jobs, and for many, the loss of health care coverage, United Healthcare knows that we all have a stake in healing health care together. Our children and our families are depending on it. That's why we are supporting Tavis Smiley's Accountable Tour. I encourage you to take a moment to stop by the United Healthcare table and learn what you can do to take charge of your health. This evening, we're offering you a jump start with uh, free cholesterol and blood pressure screenings. You will also find a great tool, a family health history tree, to help you record your personal history and identify health conditions that may be in your family. The free history tree is at the United Healthcare table. Please stop by before you leave this evening. Now I would like to introduce the man of the hour and the creator of the Accountable Tour. With his late night television show, Tavis Smiley on PBS, and his radio show, The Tavis Smiley Show from PRI, Tavis Smiley is the first and only American to simultaneously host signature talk shows on both public television and radio. Texas Southern University honored Smiley with the opening of the Tavis Smiley School of Communications and the Tavis Smiley Center for Professional Media Studies, making Smiley the youngest African American to have a professional school and center named after him on a college or university campus. Smiley has authored and or edited 14 books, including his memoir, What I Know for Sure, and The Covenant in Action, published by his own imprint, Smiley Books. Smiley made publishing history when the book he edited, 
Covenant with Black America reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list. In 2007, Smiley made television history as the moderator and executive producer of the All-American Presidential Forums on PBS, the first Democratic and Republican presidential debates broadcast live in prime time with a panel exclusively comprised of journalists of color. He is the presenter and creative force behind America I Am, the African-American imprint, an unprecedented traveling museum exhibition that is touring the country for four years, celebrating the extraordinary impact of African-American contributions of our nation and the world as told through rare artifacts, memorabilia, and multimedia. Ladies and gentlemen, let's please give a warm Baltimore City welcome to Tavis Smiley. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Let me, uh, let me just start by saying what I say when I'm in Baltimore City, or for that matter, when I'm anywhere else in the country. My favorite library in the country is the Enoch Pratt Free Library. It is my favorite library in the country. I've said that at least a dozen times on all the media interviews I've done today. I don't know that you appreciate, uh, as you should, what this library is, what this library is all about, the history in this library, um, the role that it plays in this community. So I'm always honored to be in Baltimore City and always honored uh, to be in this library. Let me just start quickly with a tribute uh, to my, my dear friend, my longtime friend, former president of the American Library Association. That means she was the top dog for a couple of years of all the librarians in this country, and she is, of course, a hometown hero here. Dr. Carla Hayden, I love you, and I'm glad to have you in the house tonight. Thank you very much. Yes. Glad to have uh, Dr. Hayden here. Mike, I thank you for such a kind introduction. Uh, and to all the people at United Healthcare. let me just suggest to you that when you uh, put out a, prod a product like this, which we're going to talk about here in just a second, um, and you, you, you release it nationally on, <clears throat> on C-SPAN, as we did last weekend, by round of applause, how many of you saw the symposium last weekend? Good, 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 good. So last weekend, of course, our 10th anniversary of the State of the Black Union Symposium, and we were honored to have uh, put this book out last weekend, to have started a national dialogue about it on C-SPAN last Saturday. By the way, before I forget, just got word from C-SPAN that tomorrow night, that's Friday night, at 8 p.m. here in Baltimore on the East Coast, tomorrow night at 8 p.m., for those who did not see this year's 10th anniversary of the State of the Black Union Symposium, which is the, the entity, the, the, the outlet that uh, birthed, that spawned these three books. This, of course, Accountable being the last of those three, the last of the trilogy. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, but this conversation, State of the Black Union, is the place where these conversations came to bear these are the conversations that birthed these three texts. So if you don't know about the State of the Black Union, you've got to connect yourself into that. The 10th anniversary was this year, last Saturday. It rebroadcast. There are two panel conversations, both about three hours apiece. So uh, if you have plans tomorrow night, I can tell you now, it's so good. Once you start watching at 8, you will be up to 2 a.m. tomorrow. So you might want to take a nap tomorrow afternoon if you're going to watch it. Or at the very least, set your TiVos tomorrow night at 8 p.m. on C-SPAN 2. C-SPAN 2, 
tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Both of those conversations will re-air back-to-back without interruption whatsoever, starting right on time tomorrow night at 8 on C-SPAN 2. So we, re- we released the book a week or so ago and started talking about it last week, but it's always been important for me with the first book, the second book, and now the third book. Again, we'll talk more about that in a moment. But it's been important for me on each of these texts or with each of these texts to get outside of the studio, to hit the road, to talk to everyday people just like you. I've always believed um, that the most important person in our democracy is that of citizen. The citizen is the most important person in our democracy. More important than the president, more important than the speaker of the house, more important than the majority leader, more important than the chief justice. There is no one in our democracy more important than you and me, those of us who are citizens in this great country. And so it seems to me, yeah, you can applaud for yourself. Give yourself some love. And so it seems to me that this is where we need to be. Uh, Beyond C-SPAN, beyond PBS, beyond NPR, we need to go into the hedges and the highways, the highways and the byways, into the streets, to have some dialogue about how we maximize the moment that we are in. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight, how we maximize this very special moment that we are in. I said all that to say that the reason why I am here and the reason why I'm catching a plane at 1015 to go on to the next city, Chicago, been in a different city every day for two or three weeks before this is all said and done, I'm on the road talking to people like you because I want to hear from you. I want to not just engage in monologue tonight. I want to engage in dialogue about the issues in the text, about the issues that matter. But none of this would be possible to put me on the road for this many weeks and all the expenses that come along with that were it not for a sponsor that understands how important these conversations are, particularly around the issue of health. I say all the time, pardon my English, if you ain't got your health, you ain't got much of nothing. And so our health is such an important conversation. And what, what, what a propitious moment, what a propitious moment to be in this museum, in this uh, library tonight with you in this, it could be a museum, it's got so much history in here, uh, Freudian slip. But what a wonderful place to be tonight on this day when our president convened a meeting at the White House today of the healthcare industry. And so we're going to talk about healthcare tonight, but I want you, I want you to show your appreciation to United Healthcare for caring and for making this tour possible in Baltimore tonight. Please thank United Healthcare. I'm watching my time because I want to make sure we get into this. Uh, let me last but certainly not least thank a dear friend uh, who has always made his platform available to me and to others who are trying to love and serve everyday people. My, defini- my definition of leadership is simply this. You can't lead people unless you love people. And you can't save people unless you serve people. You can't lead folk unless you love folk. And you can't save folk unless you serve folk. So the two questions that each of us, every one of us in this room and beyond, uh, has to wrestle with every day, because each one of us is a leader in our own right. Somebody is watching you. Somebody is paying attention to you. Somebody is taking their cues from you. Each of us is a leader in our own right. And, and, and so that definition, I think, is poignant, that you can't lead if you don't love, you can't save if you don't serve. So we have to wrestle, it seems to me, regularly, consistently, even daily, with these two questions. One, what is the depth of your love for everyday people? 
And what is the quality of your service to them? How much do you love people? And what kind of service are you providing for everyday people, for fellow citizens? It is in that regard that I celebrate persons who use the gift and the skill and the talent they have to enlighten us, to encourage us, to empower us. And every time I come to this city, he always has made his platform available to me. I missed his voice for a little while when he disappeared and so delighted and honored to know that he's now back on the radio on WEAA. Please thank Mark Steiner for being here this evening. Now, um, just a quick roadmap for where I want to take this conversation so I can get all of your books signed tonight. And by the way, if you haven't bought a book yet, you're going to get one before you leave. Y'all laughing. I'm serious. We're not going to let you exit this library until you get one of these books. Um, this is a book signing. It's a conversation about this book, and I want to make sure you get it. Uh, and I think once I get a chance to walk you through it, I always ask folk when they come in to get it on the way in because I'm about to walk you through this. And some of y'all are going to be lost for the next few minutes because you don't have a copy with you. So for all of my black brothers and sisters, make like you in Bible study and share your book with somebody near you. And when I ask you to turn to certain pages, we're going to signify by saying amen when we have it. It's going to be just like Bible study for the next 15 minutes. So I want to make sure that you have a copy of the book. And if you don't have one, once we walk you through it, you're going to uh, want to get one before you leave this place tonight. So here's what I want to do in the time that we have. Um, since there's so many of us here, and I'm honored that you that you here. I, I come to Baltimore so much, and every time I come, y'all show up. I love y'all for, be, for being here, and thank you for turning out in such huge numbers, but it presents a challenge. So I want to talk a little bit about the text. I want to then open up to some Q&A with you, and then I want to move quickly to signing every one of your books, and I'm not going to leave till they're all signed, which means I'm going to sign as fast as I can. Uh, to get on to Chicago to do this all over again in Chicago tomorrow and then on to New Orleans and then on to Seattle and then back home to L.A. and then to Oakland and then to Houston. So we got another couple weeks of doing this. But I'm delighted again to be in Baltimore and what a great place to be, again be tonight on the occasion of this meeting at the White House today, which we're going to get into right about now. Here's the backstory on why I'm here tonight. This is, as I said earlier, the third and final book in a trilogy of books about how to make America a nation that is truly as good as its promise. I, I hope tonight I don't need to disabuse anybody in here of the notion that we are yet a nation as good as its promise. We are not. America, the most multicultural, multiracial, multiethnic, the most multicultural, the most multiracial, the most multi-ethnic America ever. For all that we celebrate, indeed a black man now in the White House, America is still not yet a nation as good as its promise. And the evidence abounds to make that point. In America, even with a black man now in the White House, there is a gap between the promise of America and the possibility in America for every one of us. Let me say that again. There's a gap in America, a divide even tonight, between the promise of America and the actual possibility in America for everyday people. 
All one needs to do is to look at all the numbers. Look at the numbers on health and health disparities. Look at the education gap that you know so well in this city. Look at the achievement gap that you know so well in this city. Look at the, look at the issue of environmental racism that you know so well. I got all night. I could do this if I had all night. I could run down the list of the evidence, a litany of examples that proves, although we are a great nation, and although I think last November we turned the corner towards getting on the right track, no one in this room tonight, I dare think, would argue that we are yet a nation truly as good as our promise. And so I, I hope I don't need to belabor that point as a foundation that we've got work to do in this place called America, work to do to shrink this gap, this divide between the promise of America and the possibility in America for every single one of us. Indeed, so many of you in this room tonight and beyond, those who I have seen and I'm certain will see on this tour, so many of you were turned on, were excited, campaigned, donated, uh, walked precincts, worked for, and ultimately voted for Barack Obama in part because you believed and believe tonight that he was the right answer to move America a step closer to becoming a nation as good as its promise. We want to do something about, again, this divide between the promise and the possibility. Here's the challenge. The only way I think that we effectively do that, that is to say, uh, making the promise and the possibility one for everyone in America, not just for the rich and the lucky, but for everybody in America, how do we shrink that gap, that divide between the promise and the possibility? We do it by holding our leaders accountable. We do it by holding our leaders accountable. And so this book, I want you to understand the backstory here. This didn't just fall out of the sky. And there are a whole lot of people, or certainly some, who thought or think that this book is somehow about casting aspersion on Barack Obama. They think that Tavis has an issue with the president. And, and, and why do we want to hold him accountable? Where was this book when George Bush was president? Why now, Tavis, a book about accountability? Let me walk you through how we got to this place so that we once and for all understand clearly why this book is out now. This is the third and final book in the trilogy. The first book was called The Covenant. If you don't have it, you ought to get it. Because The Covenant laid out the what. It was the agenda. We laid out a book wrapped around 10 issues that matter to just about everybody in America. The big issues. Health, education, economic opportunity, uh, the environment, uh, the digital divide, the criminal justice system. We laid out an agenda of these top 10 issues that are principally important, most important, uh, to just about everybody in America. We laid out an agenda. It was an agenda specifically at the time about black America and how we ought to wrestle with those issues. The argument was then, and I still believe now, that when you make black America better, you make all of America better. You make black America better, you make all of America better. That was the thesis behind the first book. We laid out this agenda of these top 10 issues. The book came out and nobody would touch the book. Oprah wouldn't have me on. The Today Show wouldn't have me on. Larry King didn't have me on. NPR didn't have me on. 
Nobody wanted to talk about the little book that could. But that book, I call it the little book that could because it hit a nerve in America. And before we knew it, that book made history by becoming the first black book of its kind ever to get on the New York Times list. But it went to number one and it stayed there for weeks at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And then, then I started, a couple of things started to happen. I had a couple of epiphanies. Number one, you don't put a book out that goes to number one on the New York Times list without any media embrace whatsoever, and it stays there for weeks. That doesn't happen if just black folk are buying your book. It's kind of like being on PBS and NPR, like I am every day. I love, I love my black brothers and sisters, but I know y'all ain't the only ones keeping me on the air every night. You don't stay on PBS and NPR if you don't have a bunch of white friends, and that's why all my white friends are here tonight, and I love all of you. And I love all of you. All right. So you don't, you don't survive if just black folk are watching you. That's not how NPR and PBS works. The same is true of Barack Obama. Barack Obama, for all the love that we have for him inside black America, don't get it twisted. If a whole lot of white folk didn't vote for him, he would not be the president tonight. Period. So, I had an epiphany that this book was connecting to people beyond just the African American community. Then I started getting phone calls from people like Bill Clinton who were telling me on the phone what you see him saying on the back of this book. And then I'm getting phone calls from people like Newt Gingrich on the back of this book. So I'm getting it from the left and the right. And folk are calling me, folk who are well-known, others who are just everyday people. Folk are showing up on the tour. The books are blowing out of the stores. And people are saying to me, Tavis, or more often than not, Travis? <laughs> Travis, if you, take, if you take the word black out of the title, Covenant with Black America, what you'd have is a progressive agenda that we could all embrace from moving America forward. And then the light starts to go off. What we've laid out here really is an agenda, a polemic, uh, a, 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 a roadmap for how we can progressively move America forward. And so we put a second book out for everybody, not just black folk, but for everybody. The Covenant in Action, book number two. The first book is the what, the second book is the how. How do we as Americans take this covenant agenda and put it into action? That's book number two. The first book winds its way over weeks up to number one. The second book in its first week out, bam, top of the New York Times bestseller list, first week. So now I'm having a second epiphany. I'm like, man, this is, you know, somebody in this country is ready to have a dialogue about moving America forward. Let me just back up one quick second and, and, and say to you that all of this, I'm talking, when I say this, I mean these first two texts. These books were written and they were on the New York Times bestseller list for weeks and off the list before this guy, Barack Obama, was ever on the national stage. It's important to say that because I want to underscore that this was never about Barack Obama. When we did these first two books, y'all had never heard of Barack Obama. 
He was still a senator in the Illinois State Senate. He wasn't running for the Senate. You'd never heard of him. He hadn't gone to Boston and given that speech. He was nowhere on the national scene. I just want to, again, disabuse that nonsense that somehow we're trying to hold Barack Obama to a higher or different standard. Let me be clear. If Hillary had won, her face would be on the cover of this book. If John McCain had won, his face would be on the cover of this book. And I'm certain that neither one of them is really happy about the fact that they are not on the cover of this book as the President of the United States. So I want to, before I go forward, I want to make clear, this is not just about Barack Obama, because we didn't know this brother was going to be in the race, much less win the nomination, much less win the election. It was never about Barack Obama. But it is now. It is now. It wasn't, but it is now. And it is now unapologetically. So you got the what, you got the how. The third and final book is the weather. So it's the weather. It's the yardstick for whether or not we start to make the kind of progress in America that we need to make. I want to be clear about this again. I believe that this moment, Mark, is, as we said on the radio show, I believe this moment in America is truly pregnant with possibility. I don't know about you, but I believe that this moment is so pregnant with, with possibility. I believe we have a chance to, to, to get it right. I believe we have a chance to get on the right course. I believe we have a chance to repair our reputation that's been so damaged around the world. I believe on issues that matter to everyday people, we can start to get some traction and make some progress. I believe that this moment is pregnant with possibility, even though you have to juxtapose that against what feels like our leaning and about to fall into the depths of hell even as we speak tonight. Because everything seems to be the ground underneath us in this place called America seems to be giving way every single day. And yet I feel like we're on the precipice of something great. Let me share with you something that my African-American brothers and sisters understand about why I feel this way. Um, how might I put this? I want to make a distinction quickly between optimism and hope. Optimism and hope. I'm not altogether optimistic that things are going to necessarily get great overnight, but I remain hopeful. And for me, the distinction is this. Optimism suggests that there is a particular set of facts or circumstances or conditions, something you can see, feel, or touch, something that gives you reason to believe that things are going to get better. And so we say what? I'm optimistic. But there's something, when you say you're optimistic in your own lives, in your own work, there's something you can see or touch or feel, something that's happening in your world that gives you reason to believe that things are going to get better. And so we say, I'm optimistic. Truth of the matter is that that has never been the street on which black folk in America live. There has never, ever, 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 ever been a time in black history where we ever had reason to believe that things were going to just get better for the Negro in America. Harriet Tubman did not go back 19 times because she was optimistic. 
Dr. King didn't do what he did because he was optimistic. Malcolm didn't do what he did because he was optimistic. Du Bois, run the list. Mary McLeod Bethune, Rosa Parks didn't sit down on that bus because she was optimistic. They knew what they were up against. And there was no reason, no evidence, nothing they could see, feel, or touch that gave them reason to believe that things were going to get better. They were never optimistic. Instead, they always remained hopeful. That's why the Bible that I read says that faith is the substance of things, the evidence of things. All right. That's what faith is. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things that you can't even see. My point to you tonight is that even with all the challenges that we face as a country tonight, even for those of us in this room who aren't yet feeling optimistic, we have to remain hopeful that we can turn this situation around. Now let me add to that very quickly, having said that, that even hope needs help. Even hope needs help. And that is where the most important persons in our democracy come in, the citizenry. And that's why we're here tonight to talk about how we give the hope that Obama talked about, the help that it needs. The hope that he talked about now needs our help. I want Barack Obama to be a great president. I believe Barack Obama can be a great president. Mm. I want him to be a great president. I believe he can be a great president, but only if we help make him a great president. Great presidents, my friends, are not born. Great presidents are made. For all the comparison between Lincoln and Obama, if there is no Frederick Douglass, there is no Abraham Lincoln. There is no Abraham Lincoln if there is no Frederick Douglass. What's, what's your point, Travis? My point is, my point is that great presidents have to be pushed into their greatness. They got to be pushed. They got to be pulled. They got to be cajoled. They got to be thrust. They have to be challenged. We cannot now abandon our post. And here's what troubles me. Here's what travails me. Here's why I am here. Because as Americans, if I can tell you the truth, can I speak truth to power? Can I, can I speak truth to power? Can I tell it like it is? Can I take it to the bridge? Can I hit it and quit it? All right. The truth of the matter as Americans is that too often we fail on the follow-through. We fail on the follow-through. We fall down on the follow-through. And I'm really worried about that now because there's never been a guy who excites us the way Obama does. And the more excited we get, the more excitable we are, the more I'm afraid that we're going to think that he has some sort of magic wand that he's going to wave and all of our problems are going to go away. I'm afraid that too many of us in black America are still so caught up in the symbolism that we ain't started thinking about the substance. And here's, what, here's, here's the one thing. 
Here's the one thing I know that every one of us in this room has to agree on, certainly those of us who happen to be people of color. Now, for all my white brothers and sisters, watch how this works. You saw me come this way, you saw me come in late, so you know we have not had no Negro meeting tonight in advance of meeting in this room. I have not had a chance to, to hook up with all my black brothers and sisters. This, what you're about to witness is unrehearsed. But watch, watch how this works. Just watch this. Tell my white brothers and sisters, just watch this. Every black person in this room knows this because we've been taught it all of our lives. If you're black in America, you better work twice as and you better be twice as see how that works. I know all my white friends are really impressed right about now. How did all these black people do that on cue? Unrehearsed. Because every black person in this cavernous room tonight has been taught that all of our lives. What's your point, Tavis? Barack Obama, if he succeeds, if he succeeds, it means there's a chance... I'll, I'll take the win. I'll take that. That's a, that's a bit of optimism, but I'll take that. If and when Barack Obama succeeds, there's the possibility then that somewhere down the road, another person of color and one day a woman will get the opportunity to be elected president of the United States of America. If and when he succeeds. If he fails, if he fails, it's going to be another 400 years. Anna Julia Cooper put it this way. Anna Julia Cooper put it this way. When and where I enter, the whole race enters with me. It's not right. It's not fair. It's what I call the it theory. It is what it is. We all going to get judged by that. The rules don't change when you become president as long as you're black. You still better work twice as, and you better be twice as. That's the way the game is played. Don't get it twisted now. Don't think, don't think that he has circumvented that rule. Every president is in a fishbowl. And this one is show enough, as Big Mama would say, show enough in a fishbowl. At some point, this media honeymoon is going to end. Mark my word on that. I think y'all see where I'm going with this. We're going to have to help make him successful. We're going to have to help make him great. But he is going to have to be pushed every step of the way. Every step of the way, he's going to have to be pushed pushed why because campaigning is one thing governing is something different and I don't care who you are the minute you start governing you start disappointing I don't care who you are the minute anybody goes from candidate to elected official you start governing and you're no longer campaigning you start disappointing and we're going to have to help him push him into his greatness. Bill Clinton has said to me any number of times, 
in conversation, private conversation, that I would now make public. Clinton always regretted the fact, always was disappointed by the fact that on his watch as president, he said to me in private conversations, uh, he wishes he had a major crisis that had happened on his watch so he could prove to y'all his real stature. He, he could prove to you his organizational ability. He could really, and I understand it from a leader's point of view, he really would have loved the opportunity to prove what a real, true leader he was or is or could have been. So to the extent, don't misunderstand the point, to the extent that 9-11 was going to happen, he would have wanted it to happen on his watch. To the extent that Katrina was going to happen, he would have wanted it to happen on his watch. And he would die right now to be president. That's why he was, pu that's why he was pushing Hillary so hard. He, he, he'd love right now to have his hands on this and to help push Hillary into her greatness. I ain't mad at him. They're a wonderful, wonderful couple. I ain't mad at him for that. But he would love this moment as president to put his hands on deck right now and be our captain of state. He regrets he never had that opportunity. He said that to me in our private conversations. My point here is this. As bleak as the situation looks, the ground is not the ground is more than fertile for Barack Obama to become a great president. That's why the old adage says that the darkest hour of the day is just before the dawn. I hope you're feeling me on this. That this moment, as I said earlier, is truly pregnant with possibility. Something good, something historic, something magnificent, something life-changing for the nation could happen, but only if we are prepared to do our part to hold our leaders accountable. Let me take five minutes now to give you a quick tutorial on what this book is and how this book will help us do that. Because I got a real problem with you having to wait to the end of the first 100 days for Mark or me or PBS, or CNN, or ABC, or NBC, or Fox. Why should you, the citizen, have to wait to the end of the first 100 days for us to tell you how your president is doing? I mean, think about the, the, the illogic in that. You are the most important person in this process, the citizen. And you sitting back waiting on us in the media like we have any regard for accountability. We got rolled for eight years by the Bush administration. The media just fell down on its job for eight years. Nobody wanting to ask the questions. Nobody wanting to raise the issues. Nobody doing follow-up. Everybody accepting the lying, the spying, the torturing. The media got rolled for eight years. And now here we come again, and you honestly think, you honestly believe that you can rely on our media to tell you in earnest how your president is doing and why you got to wait a hundred days for us to tell you that anyway. Everybody running said the same thing. I'm going to be ready on day one. <clears throat> well, when you start governing on day one, you start being held accountable on day one.
What's this 100-day crap? I don't get that. Now, I understand that, the, that his entire agenda is not going to be um, uh, put forth in 100 days. I ain't stupid, y'all. I understand that. And to his credit, President Obama is off to an aggressive first 30, 40 days. He's doing his thing. An aggressive 30 or 40 days. But here again in America, we got short memories. Short memories. The truth of the matter is that for whatever reasons and for, and for, and for however Barack Obama as a candidate connected to you, I'm not going to do a quiz in here tonight, but most of us don't really remember what he said on all these issues. You got lives to live, real lives. You got real babies to raise. You got real jobs to go to. You got real bills to pay. Say amen. That's what I thought. You got real lives to live. I'm not mad at you. I'm not faulting you for, re for not remembering everything he said, for not being able to quote it to me, chapter and verse. I cover this stuff every day, and I have to rely on this text. But when somebody gives you the playbook, when they give you the guidebook, when they give you everything he said, and all you have to do is to follow along, to check it off when he does it, to check him when he doesn't do it, to hold all the leaders accountable. What's the excuse now? What's our excuse, Baltimore? What's the excuse? So here's the book. On the cover, you see Barack Obama's face. For those who have it up close, you see his face. His face is made up of hundreds of other photos of other faces. These are the faces of elected officials from every political ideology and every party all over this great nation. I hope the point is clear. It's not just about him. It's about all these leaders. It's about all these leaders. He is the president. But he keeps telling us in every speech, I can't do it alone. In every speech, what's he talking about? Accountability. Every speech President Obama gives, he's saying the word over and over and over again, accountable, hold me accountable. He says it every time. So forget me, forget all about me, if your president is telling you every time he opens his mouth, hold me accountable, what you going to do? I mean, he's telling you to do it every time he speaks. There's a story we tell in the forward, I'm watching my time here. There's a story we tell in the forward of the book. The forward of the book, I tell a story that Obama is now so fond of, he is now on the record as telling this story himself. He's taken my story and started telling it himself. And the story, a true story goes like this. You'll read it tonight when you buy the book and go home. You'll read it tonight in the forward. The greatest black labor leader, one could argue one of the greatest labor leaders ever, black or otherwise, in this nation was a man named Asa Philip Randolph. A. Philip Randolph, the head of the Pullman Porters. Long story very short, very quick. Randolph got invited to dinner at the White House one day in the book by Eleanor and President Franklin Roosevelt. They invited him to the house, to the White House, one night for dinner. After dinner, very quickly, the president asked Randolph to join him in an adjoining room for after-dinner drinks and cigars. 
While they're in there drinking and smoking, the president says to labor leader Randolph, Mr. Randolph, tell me about the needs of your people, about the needs and the desires and the aspirations of the colored, per- the colored people, the Negroes in America. Tell me about the needs of your people. And Randolph lays it down. He tells the president in detail the needs of colored people in America, the agenda of colored people, what the president can do to help them. He lays it down. When he finishes, the president looks at Randolph and says, Mr. Randolph, I've heard everything you've said. I agree with everything you have said. Furthermore, I agree that as president, I have the bully pulpit. And indeed, I have the power to address many of the issues that you have laid out in answer to my question. I want to thank you for sharing that with me. But I do recognize I've got the power to address what you've laid out. Would you do me just one favor, though? The president says to Mr. Randolph, just do me one small favor. Mr. Randolph said, certainly, Mr. President, what what can I do for you? He said, go out now and make me do it. FDR says to Randolph, go out and make me do it. Obama has started, President Obama has started telling that story. He gets it. He gets it. He's telling us to go out and do what? Make him do it. Go out and make him do it. You understand this, right? If we go out and make him, if we write, and if we call, and if we inform ourselves, and if we raise hell, and if we protest, and we get involved now on this health care debate right now, and let our voices get heard, and all the other issues we talk about in the text, if we get involved now and make him do it, he's going to have to do it. When the American people rise up, they got to they, they, they do it. They got to listen. They got to do it. So he's telling that story. The president is now. And every time he talks, he's telling you to hold me accountable. He ain't speaking in cold. He's trying to tell us in, exact, in, in as exact a way as he can. I need y'all to build some groundswell here. I need you to get behind me. I need you to push me. I need to hear you. I need you to get involved now like you were in my campaign. I need that energy. I need that enthusiasm. I need that euphoria. I need you to hold me accountable. I need you to push me. I need you to be the wind at my back. I can't do it without you. Hold me accountable. For those who have the book, turn quickly to page, if you will, page number nine. I want to walk you through one chapter right quick, and then I'll take your questions and comments. One chapter right quick. The framework is the same for every chapter. So if I walk you through one chapter, you'll be able to see how easy it is to use this text, how, 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 how wonderfully uh, easy this book is laid out for you to hold your leaders accountable. For those who have it, signify by saying amen. amen. Page number nine is the healthcare chapter, first chapter in the book. At the start of every chapter, we tell you what we're going to wrestle with in the chapter. This case, who holds the cure? We give you a couple of quotes to get your mind wrapped around what you're about to tackle in this chapter. Turn to page quickly, number 10. Every chapter in the book starts out with a personal narrative, a few 
personal narratives. I believe that if we can connect to the humanity in each other, we understand these issues better and we can better and more properly situate ourselves as citizens in the democracy. We have to sometimes connect to the humanity in other people. The problem with America is that still, speaking of that difference, that differential between uh, the, the gap between the promise and, and the possibility, that gap exists because too many people's humanity on a daily basis is still being contested. What's wrong with America is what I call contested humanity. The humanity of too many people because of their race, because of their religion, because of their gender, their sexual orientation, etc., etc., etc. The humanity of too many people in this country being contested every day. We have to tap into the humanity in each of us. And so every chapter starts out by celebrating the humanity in everyday people. Every chapter starts out with these narratives of people who have been beaten down in some way, shape, form, or fashion by the process that is our government, by the process that is corporate America. So in chapter one, we start with a story about a woman named Carol Ann Reyes. I can't tell you the story, but it's going to mess you up when you get home tonight and read what they did to Carol Ann Reyes. How the hospital she was in literally lifted her up out of a bed, put her in a cab, and dumped her on the streets of Los Angeles. All these stories are real. Turn quickly now to page number 14. There's a story about the Hilsebecks being denied care despite having coverage. There are too many Americans who have coverage. Some of y'all saw the movie Sicko by Michael Moore. Too many Americans who have coverage who are still getting dissed and played and literally kicked to the curb by the healthcare industry. This meeting that Mr. Obama, the president, has today could not be more timely. Read about the hills of Bex when you get home on page 14. Turn to page 16. Read about the Schaefers, everyday people, just like those of you here in Baltimore and surrounding communities. Read about the Schaefers on page 16 when you get home. Turn quickly to page number 19, a story that some of y'all know too well because it happened right here in Maryland. The story of 12-year-old Diamante Driver, 12-year-old kid, wakes up one morning with a toothache. Over time, the toothache turns into a tooth abscess. The tooth abscess gets infected. The infection spreads to his brain. When it spreads to his brain, they rush him to a hospital here in Maryland, specifically Prince George's County, and your taxpayer money in the state of Maryland, well above a quarter of a million dollars of your money is spent trying to save 12-year-old Diamante's life. He dies in that hospital, and he dies because his mama could not afford an $89 tooth extraction. Here's the rub. She wasn't sitting in a public housing project being lazy. She wasn't unemployed. She wasn't a crackhead. She was working every day. 
There's something wrong in America when we allow ourselves to get so comfortable even using the phrase, the working poor. What is that nonsense? The working poor? If you work, you ought not to be poor. Forget a minimum wage, how about a living wage? How are you going to work in America and not have access to basic, fundamental health care? For all that talk between Obama and McCain during the campaign, now is the time. Now is the time the rubber is meeting the road. Obama promised to have meetings in the White House. He started that today. But it's not going to happen without us holding him and them accountable. Turn now quickly to page number 20. After we give you these narratives, then in every chapter, we offer you a framework for assessment. I don't expect you to know all this stuff. I don't know all this stuff. So, Tavis, what is the framework on this issue for how I assess what they're doing and how they're doing it? Give me a framework for assessment. Glad you asked. Bam, there it is on page 20. Turn to page 21. Once you get past the framework, now we're into the good stuff. We're talking about solutions. Page 21, solutions for government reform. Turn to page 26, solutions for government enforcement. Solutions for private employers. Turn to page 29. Solutions for insurance providers. Turn to page 30. Solutions for doctors and hospitals and pharmaceuticals. Turn to page 31. Solutions for individuals. It's all laid out for you, ladies and gentlemen. Turn to page 33. And now we give you an accountable assessment checklist. Right here on page 33. As is the case in every chapter. A checklist of what Barack Obama promised to do. Here's what he promised. This is how we hold him accountable. There's a checklist there. Turn to page 34. I told you earlier, it's not just about Barack Obama. So on page 34, you see a checklist, a detailed, broken down checklist, a delineated list. How is the president doing? Some of these things he's already done starting today. Check it off. But not just the president. How are members of Congress doing? How are the governor and state legislators doing? How are community leaders and faith-based organizations doing? And finally, how are you and I doing as citizens in this democracy? How are we doing? It's all here to hold yourselves responsible and them accountable. Turn the page. You're on chapter two, education. It starts all over again. It's all here, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters. It's all here. For those who have the book, if you turn the book to its side, you will see, I really want to make this easy for you. Eighth grader can use this. Turn the side of the book, you'll see a section of the book that has pages marked in a different color, gray. It stands out. You can see the gray area. That gray area begins on page 171. Turn to it right quick, please. There are two words that you see on page 171 in big, bold print. What are those two words? Say it again. One more again. A whole report card on all the promises that were made corresponding to each chapter earlier in the text is a segment in the back of the book in the report card called Promises, Promises that tells you now in detail what he promised with specificity. So, 
you read now on page 172 under health. Here's what he said he was going to do on health insurance. And you see a checklist, accountability checklist. How's he doing? Turn to page 174 under health. Here's what he said on catastrophic illness. There's a checklist. How's he doing? 176, research funding. How's he doing? 178, lowering cost. How's he doing? 180, informing patients. How's he doing? And then you turn to page 182, education. It starts all over again. There ain't no excuse, y'all. It's all here. It's all here to hold him and all of our leaders accountable. Their accountability is our responsibility. I do not want to look up four years from now and have any guilt on my part as a member of the media that I fell down in doing my small part to help us as citizens do our part to hold all of our leaders accountable. There is honor in accountability. There is honor in accountability. Finally, for all those who were excited, as I said earlier, and euphoric and energetic and all of that, for all y'all who had the T-shirts on and the underwear with Obama's face, everything with Obama on it. If you were an Obama fan then, you need to get busy now. I don't want to hear it. If we could get just a scintilla, a scintilla of all that energy on the campaign applied to the issues, if we would just decide one time in America to show up, if we decide to not fall down, to not falter, to not fail one time on holding people accountable, we could maximize this moment. We can maximize this moment but only if we're willing to hold our leaders all of our leaders thank you very much I appreciate it all right thank you there are a couple of microphones I see one over here being held one over here we have just a few minutes for some questions and comments. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm tripping. Testing. Tell me something. Ask me a question. Let's talk about it. Mark is here. He can comment as well. And then we'll line you up and sign your books. Yes, pass the microphone. I'm ready. Let's go. Right here. He's right here. Uh, Mr. Malley, thank you for coming to Baltimore. Yes, sir. And I just want everybody to know that the whole world is looking at the United States now. They're looking at the first black president that ever came into this country. And we got to stand and let him know we are behind him. Ms. Travis, I want to talk about your con accountability. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, you know, I, I look at our politicians when you say accountability. And as a citizen, I know all of us got all kinds of legal problems and government problems and problems that we think that somebody should step up and say, no, that's not right. Right. Our politicians here support the big industries the big super athletes, the movie stars, you know, but you very seldom see them representing the citizens when they have a hard problem that the government has their foot on the back of it. And the thing about it is, I call them, you said the caucus, to me, that's what they are, caucus, because I don't see the political power that our black caucus have that they should have 
to represent what we've been fighting for and going through for years in this country that they never stood up and had accountability for. Could you tell me about that? It's a good question, a uh, good comment rather. The Congressional Black Caucus specifically is going to have to learn, as black people are going to have to learn, how to do this dance, if I can put it that way, with Barack Obama. Inside of black America, everything he says or doesn't say, everything he does or doesn't do, we're not going to be in agreement with. And we're going to have to learn how, again, to do this dance with him. I think the answer ultimately lies in being able to stand in our truth. What is the agenda for the African-American community, since you asked about it, that the Congressional Black Caucus wants to stand behind? And how, then, do they help get the president to understand, to appreciate, and to embrace that agenda? The truth of the matter is what I'm hearing from the Hill, and God knows he's been busy, but I'm telling you honestly, there's already some murmuring on the Hill because the CBC has not been able to get a meeting yet with the president. And there's already some murmuring. Again, I don't want to cast aspersion on him. I'm just saying in every aspect, we're going to have to learn how to do the dance with him, but that's where the issue of accountability comes in. Whatever the issues are, that we think are significant to our constituency, to our community, that need to be advanced, like every other constituency, you have to learn how to roll with the president, how to hold his feet to the fire, how to remind him not to sell his soul, not to surrender his soul, not to let them steal his soul. And he's going to have to be reminded of that on the regular. Next question or comment. Yes. I really appreciate you coming out here tonight. And this is my question to you. What happened with Gina Six? Because, and, I, and the reason why I asked that question is because when Gina Six happened, everybody went down to Louisiana and got on the bandwagon about juvenile mm -hmm. justice. I'm a I have an organization called the Eric Belines Advocacy Institute where it's to empower and educate people about juvenile justice issues and violence, and violence intervention and prevention issues. And the reason why I say this is because they are locking our children up at alarming mm -hmm. rates. I mean, 50,000 50, children just go in the Department of Juvenile Services just here in Maryland, and it's sickening. It is really sickening that everybody jumped on the bandwagon and went down to Louisiana and talked about mm. Michael Bell and his situation and what happened, and then they came back, and then you didn't hear anything else let, about it. Let me respond to that. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to you know, get as many questions as I can in the time we have. Powerful issue. I'm glad you raised it. Two quick responses. Number one, I said then, when the Gina 6 situation went down, that we have Gina 6s in our communities all across America. And I didn't begrudge anybody. I was not mad at anybody for getting on a bus and going down there. But here again, something happens and we all want to get caught up in the media hype of whatever X or said issue is. But right here on the home front, you ain't got to go on no bus to go to Louisiana to understand how black men, black babies, black children are maltreated. To your point, it's happening right here in Baltimore. Issue number one. You, gotta, you, you have to, to tackle these issues right where you live. Do the thing that's right in front of you. Two words, assign yourself. Sometimes you got to make yourself a committee of one if you're going to start trying to hold people accountable. Issue number two, we'll move on. During the campaign for the White House, strategically, I understand it. Again, I'm not stupid. I get this. I understand why they didn't discuss it, but it doesn't make it right. There was no conversation about this during the campaign. None at all. My, my only point in raising it is this. If we care about how our children are being maltreated, 
in communities of color and all across America, that issue is going to have to get raised. We have three presidential debates between McCain and Obama. The word poverty never came up one time. There were so many issues in this campaign that did not get discussed. That's why I felt it important to come to Baltimore, come to Morgan State, and have that presidential debate live on PBS in prime time with the Republicans. That's why I went to Howard live in prime time on PBS with the Democrats. I wanted to make sure that there was at least going to be one debate in the entire run-up to the White House where people of color and journalists of color got to raise these kinds of questions because I knew they weren't going to be asked by anybody else in this campaign. But now that the campaign is over and he's in the White House, those of us who care about these issues are going to have to hold him. These are our issues. Next question, comment. Hello, Tab. Hello there. Can you hear me? I hear you well. Okay. Um, first off, can I be real here with everyone here? First off, if I say something that's offensive to someone, I don't intend to. Um, there's a couple things I want to address. One is, as far as African-American people, um, not to exclude anybody else, this is one of the, my pet peeves, some things that I'm learning about. When Barack Obama came on the scene, and I've voted since I was 18, I'm 44, mm-hmm. I have never been inspired and motivated to move and get involved the way I have now. Mm-hmm. And I'm a person, I know the promises that he gave. I think you're underestimating us. It seems like Republicans, conservatives, Democrats alike are used to us maybe behaving like children. But this is a different politician. He's not your normal, everyday politician. No, he's not, well, he's not God. He's not going to, he doesn't have a magic wand to change everything overnight. But this man, what he has accomplished in 40 days is more than the last two presidents did in 16 years. Number one. Number two. As a people, with our own history, at 44, I'm realizing that there was a relationship between blacks and Jews, and the leaders, Reverend Jackson and Al Sharpton, self-appointed leaders who've done some good things, not everything they do is good, I don't hear them talking about that relationship. How with W.E.B. Du Bois, the first black man to graduate from Harvard, had a Jewish man involved with with, uh, establishing the NAACP. You don't hear those things. A a lot of times with Gina, I was behind Gina. I heard a conservative. I listened to them. I listened to progressive radio. I listened to liberals. I don't get into the labels. I heard a conservative talk show host talk about Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton the other day. And he said, oh, yeah, after Eric Holder made his statement, why don't you see them when black children are killing each other on the streets every day? Where are they then? We need to help our children, the ones in front of the guns and the ones behind the guns. Let me, let me, let me. One second. Sure, go ahead. Because I might not ever see you again. I don't know. But President Obama, he's not going to sell his soul. Okay? We need to get involved and be, and hold ourselves accountable and do what we can do for each let other. Me, let me, let me jump in here. I, I, I want to ask you a quick question. Our, our time is running, but I want to ask a quick question. The latter part of your statement, I've said all night long, that it's about us holding ourselves responsible first before we hold them accountable. I've been very clear about that. But I'm curious as to your first comment when you said that you think that I am underestimating, that the people are being underestimated. What did you mean by that? What I mean is that the media underestimated President Obama. No, no, no. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. 
And I, us. I, I, hold up. Hold okay. up. I ain't asking you about Obama. Uh-huh. Your comment, your comment was that the people okay. are being under. Don't give me a speech about Obama. You gave me that already. All right. How are the people being underestimated? That because was your point. Because we are paying attention okay. more than you may realize, more than the media may realize, more than our elected leaders may realize. We are paying attention. We are involved. We watch C-SPAN. We blog. We get involved. We talk to our people. When, when this campaign was rolling, we met thousands of people. We um, are registered people, educated, uneducated, thugs, whatever you Got want it. to call. Let me, let, me, let me respond to that. The only reason why I asked that question is I wanted, one, I wanted your, you know, your, your, uh, your counsel and your answer as to what you meant by that. Let me, let me just add on to this right quick before we move on to this side of the room, that this is not about underestimating anybody. What this is about is providing people the tools that can help them do whatever they're doing even better. That's all this is, helping people do what they do even better. It's not about casting aspersion. It's not about indicting anybody. It's about putting something else out there. Whatever the energy is, whatever the effort is, that's a beautiful thing. But it's about empowering people with information that can help them do even better what they're already doing. And that's why the research is so important. And I thank you. On this side, yes. Um, I, 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 sorry, I'm sorry. They got a line back there. I'm sorry, ma'am. Yes. Um, I, I appreciate the talk that um, you gave today mm -hmm. for the speech. Thank you. Um, but it's one thing that you mentioned, and it was um, follow through. Mm -hmm. That's something that you said. And I think that's actually more important than us being healed or... You know, us buying the book, although it is important that we buy the book. But it, I think more, you know, it's, it's more important for us to follow through because accountability, if I could take it one step further, is not just a book or a name. It's real lives hanging in a balance, just like you gave examples of the real stories of people who are mm -hmm. being hurt, um, you know, by leaders not being held accountable. And so I just wanted to reiterate what you say, kind of like, for us all to take a second and think about a practical thing that we, we we're all going to do after we feed the the what the spouse the dog the cat after we go home and do all of those things just take like 10 minutes and write a letter or do it's something a, it's a it's a powerful suggestion i take that let me just say to you and everybody in this room if you never buy a book that i ever write or ever connected to i'm not going to starve because you don't buy a book what does matter to me is what you said a moment ago that people make a conscious decision to do something, to actively engage and involve themselves. That's why I kept saying tonight that the citizen is the most important person in our democracy. Having said that, what the book does do, because there's so many people who feel the energy, they feel the excitement, they want to make a contribution. I get this all the time, but they don't know exactly what to do. So every chapter in the book tells you exactly what we can do to help advance the agenda that the president is laying out, but as individuals, how we, how might I put this, can brighten the corner right where we are. So for those who don't have those ideas, who want to make a difference and don't know what to do, every chapter in this book around whatever issue you're passionate about, there are suggestions in there to help you get out and do something to make a contribution. That's in the book as well. All right. Yes. Uh, Brother Tavis, yes, I'm, I'm glad um, you're here. I bought your book. I admire you greatly. Thank you. I want to give you another opportunity to refute some of the cyber rumors about the motivation and intent behind your book. Mm -hmm. And one is a few of my friends who are African-American journalists have shared with me, floating around there in the blogosphere, that 
your motivation behind the book, and I just want to see how you personally feel about sure. Brother Barack Obama, is that you were personally slighted and offended and went to your lower self when he did not accept your invitation or for whatever excuse he had not show up at the last um, State of Black America address and Hillary, and Hillary Clinton, the white woman, showed up at your event as well. Could you categorically state that sure. that was not your motivation about this book? Yes, I can. All right. Um, the, short, the, short answer is, the short answer is that I talked earlier tonight about standing in your truth. To whatever degree I have been regarded in black America and even beyond, as evidenced by the turnout here tonight, but to whatever degree I have been celebrated, small c, and I say this with all humility, I think you'll get my point, to whatever degree I have been celebrated because of my work, it has been because people expect me to tell the truth, they expect my information to be reliable and factual, they know that my whole life has been dedicated to loving and serving black people. Before PBS ever came knocking, before NPR ever came knocking, the cover of Time Magazine, Newsweek, New York Times bestseller list, all of my career, I have been in the trenches trying to love and serve black people. And I have never veered away from that. I said earlier tonight, I think, or certainly intimated, that the goal for me, I think for all of us, is to love all of humanity. That's what I believe. The goal for all of us is to love all of humanity. That, for me, starts unapologetically with a particular love for African-American people, given that that's the community that's birthed me. So my whole career has been dedicated to that reality. Um, when Michael Dukakis ran, I talked about one thing, accountability. When Bill Clinton ran, I talked about one thing, accountability. When Bill Clinton tried that sister-soldier move on Jesse Jackson... I checked him. When he got in office and he signed that ridiculous 100 to 1 crack to powder cocaine crime bill, I checked him. When he sat on his hands and didn't go into Rwanda, I checked him when genocide was going on. When Al Gore ran for president and didn't want to recount certain black precincts in Broward County, even though he knew black folk had been disenfranchised in those precincts because he didn't want to color code the recount, to have a race tinge on it. He goes privately to Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson and asks them to quietly leave the state of Florida because he doesn't want race to get in the way of his recount and his potential victory. I checked Al Gore on that. When John Kerry ran and didn't win the nomination for the party until the campaign swung down south and all the black people voted for him, he secures the nomination, goes to Boston, and doesn't say a word. But anything critical to black people in his, in his acceptance speech, I checked John Kerry for that. And your friends and the folk in cyberspace somehow thought that I was going to shut up and stop talking about accountability because a black man was running? No, sir. Not me. No, sir. The bottom line is I don't care. I don't care who you are. I don't care who you are. If you're running for president, you've got to be held accountable to everybody in America, everybody. It's all about accountability. So I said, I said, so I tonight. This is not about casting aspersion on Barack Obama. It's about holding him and all leaders accountable. Two other quick points and I'm done with this. In addition to that, Barack Obama and I have been friends for years. 
He has worked with my foundation for years, dedicated to leadership development of young people ages 13 to 18, a stalwart supporter of my foundation. He's my personal friend. When all of this Obama smiley brouhaha was jumping off last year, my phone log indicates to me that candidate Senator Obama and I talked six times, a half a dozen times while all this stuff was going on. Most of those phone calls he initiated as my friend to me. And while y'all were talking about this nonsense, we were talking about what we always talk about as friends. And every conversation ended, brother, the same way. Obama said to me, Tavis, you do what you got to do, but I got to do what I got to do to get elected. And that's how that conversation went down every time we talked. Now, here's the end of it, though. Here's the end of it. For all the hell that I got last year for talking about accountability, I ask again, what is the president now a year later talking about every time he speaks? Last Saturday at the State of the Black Union, who showed up live via satellite from the White House and started by saying, I want to thank Tavis Smiley, my friend, and he went on beyond that. That's not the important part, but he went on last Saturday on C-SPAN. You'll see it again tomorrow night at 8 o'clock. He went on to talk about what? Accountability. This is a, it's a non-issue. President Obama understood it then. He understands it now. The fact that some folk couldn't hear that because they wanted him to win so badly and thought that all of us should shut up and not raise any issue of accountability, I can't, I can't help you on that. My job has always been, it is now, and it will always be, using whatever gift and skill and talent God has given me to try to love and serve people by holding everybody. That's all I can tell you. One last question. They tell me I got to run. I'm sorry. Yes, ma'am. Hi, Mr. Smiley. Yes, ma'am. Um, follow your show, your, even your radio show. I enjoy it very much. Thank you. And so happy to see you here today. My question is to you is I'm a doctor here in the Baltimore uh, er, local area, mm -hmm. and I've written my autobiography of my life. And I want to know, I, I've seen your books, and I'm very interested and I want to know how I would go about getting a publisher, getting it published, because I have no idea. I don't know how to get an agent, and um, I don't know how much it would cost. I'm answering your question. The brother <laughs> in the suit right there. Okay, can I get his card? Yes, that's the brother right there. Okay, yes, ma'am. Thank you all for coming out. I appreciate you. I love you. And Mark's going to tell us how this signing is going to work out. All right, everyone. What's going to happen now is, let's thank Tavis for being here, and if you want your book signed, no personal inscriptions or personalizations, Tavis will be in the back room, I mean right behind the screen here, signing the books. Thank you all for coming, and let's say once again, thank you to Tavis Smiley.